It was a pleasant day, fellowship-wise, yesterday, even if the weather was not as conducive. Andrew Murray was at a, uh, a Christian workers' training, and they were discussing some of the necessities of what is necessary in the heart of a Christian worker, a missionary. And someone asked Andrew, they said, what do you think is the most important quality in the heart of a Christian worker? And he thought for a little bit, and he says, I believe the most necessary thing to be effective in the work of Christ is absolute surrender. He went on to say this, what is needed most in the heart of the Christian worker is an absolute surrender to God. When that is absent, the person who may have many giftings and personal abilities, but is continually weak, lacking maturity, and much less effective in the work of building the kingdom of God, even if they are filled with much busyness. But when someone is absolutely surrendered to God, they are peaceable confident, and highly effective in the work of God, even if they are rather rough or unskilled in their mannerisms. It got me thinking as I was meditating on this a few weeks ago, why is absolute surrender so critical? Why did Andrew Murray think it was so critical, and does Scripture support that? And more importantly, why is it so rare? Why do we struggle with that? Or maybe you don't. And if that's the case, if you don't feel that you struggle, you're, you have no, no struggle with being completely surrendered to God's will in your life, then I want to talk to you afterwards and find out your secret. Because I think it's something that falls prey to our human nature. So what is absolute surrender? Surrender is to cease resistance to an enemy or, oppon- or an opponent and submit to their authority. To cease resisting and submit to that authority. It's, it's a willingly turning oneself over to the authority of another. And I'm going to give three examples here. Uh, one of them was very, sim- very close to what we studied in our Sunday school lesson this morning. The example of Isaac and Abraham on the altar. Now, when Abraham was taking Isaac up there to the mountain, did he have to surrender to God's leading and God's direction in his life? Did that surrender cost him something? Did it cost him something little or something great? I'm going to say, I believe that surrender to God cost him the most precious promise he had. He had been promised a son for so long, and now here was God saying, I want you to give him back. I want you to trust me and be willing to give him back. I also believe that surrender was, was absolute surrender was there on Isaac's part. We don't know how old, how old Isaac was, but we know that uh, Abraham was over a hundred. And a young man usually does not have a hard time overpowering a hundred-year-old man. And yet, Abe, yet Isaac allowed himself to be bound and put on the altar. He surrendered himself to what his father asked of him to do. Notice what God says about Abraham. He says, you have not withheld your son. In other words, you had the opportunity to say, no, God, I don't want to do that. And you didn't. He said, you have not withheld your son, your only son. Absolute surrender. Another example of that would be David. You know, David had been warned, David wanted to take a census, a count 
of all the people of, of Israel. And the purpose of that is to know how big an army you can make, how, how strong you are, so that you can maybe intimidate the, the other nations around you, that they won't uh, attack you. And yet God had expressly forbidden the children of Israel from taking such a census. Why? Some of it because then they start putting the trust in their own strength, in their own might. And David had been warned by numerous of his people. Joab, which wasn't exactly the bastion of righteousness in his actions, Joab even said, why would you do this? Don't do this. And David went ahead with it anyways. Well, God sent judgment on the children of Israel because of David's sin. Prophet Nathan came and says, you have your choice. Do you want to flee before the enemies of God for three months? Do you want three days of pestilence? Now I'm missing the third one. And David's response was, please, let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercies are great. He, I don't want to choose like God. I trust His, his mercy in this. And the, and the Lord sent the, uh, the angel down, and he started... Um, people started dying. And it says that David went up on his roof and he saw the angel of death passing over and it stopped at, at the one threshing floor. And he pled. He says, why, Lord, why is not... Why, why are these people suffering for my sin? Why am, am I in my house not taking the punishment for my sin? And he saw the angel of death over and he stopped out there by the threshing floor. And David went and he went out to meet the angel of death. What do you think David was expecting? Do you think he expected this was going to be his last day? He was absolutely surrendered to what God was going to do because he knew that God was just. And his, but his, also his mercies were great. He was surrendering himself to God. Third and probably the most um, powerful example of absolute surrender that I can find is Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. How many times had Jesus said when he was here, I came not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. In other words, I'm not here to set up an earthly kingdom for myself. I'm not here to get accolades and to get uh, a lot of good rapport with people. I'm here to do what God has asked me to do, what my Father wants me to do, whether or not it is pleasant for myself. I'd like to ask you, what physical benefit would Jesus have from going through the crucifixion? Was there any physical benefit to him that he said, if I just make it through this, then, then everything will be all, all better? No. This was the end. This was death. And Jesus had every physical reason for saying, no, God, I can't go through this. And yet he said so powerfully, not my will, but thine be done. The most powerful example of saying, Lord, whatever, God, whatever you want, I'm going to be surrendered to that. Absolute surrender requires one to submit their will and their actions to the will of another. Why is this so hard? Why is this so hard for us to do? Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 20. We're going to look at this just briefly. We're going to look at the life of, or a story about King Ahab that is oftentimes overlooked. 
But I found this fascinating when I was reading through here. 1 Kings chapter 20, we're going to read the first nine verses, reading from the New King James. Now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. There were 32 kings of him with horses and chariots, and went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Now, just so you remember, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom, where Ahab was the king. And they sent messengers in the city of Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all I have are yours. Then the messengers came back and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver and your gold and your wives and your children. But I will also send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants, and it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes they shall put in their hands and take it. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and my silver and my gold, and I did not deny him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. Therefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king all that you sent for your servant the first time. I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. So here you have one big powerful king coming up to a smaller king and saying, Your silver and gold, your money, your bank accounts, that's mine. I'm taking it. Your wives and your children, I'm going to take that. And Ahab says, Okay, that's fine. I'll give that. Now, the father heart of me and the, and the, the husband side of me wells up in saying, how could you? I do recognize it was a different culture and time where, can we say that sometimes these things were traded for peace and prosperity? They were bargaining chips, so to speak. And Ahab said, I'm willing to pay that. For the sake of peace, for the sake of my own life, I'm willing to pay that. I'm willing to let you have those. And then Ben-Hadad comes back and says, okay, I'm not only I'm going to take those, I'm going to take everything that makes life pleasant for you. I'm going to take everything that you like. I'm I'm going to claim them all as myself. And now Ahab says, okay, I have a problem. You're going to make life miserable for me. Now, was he surrendered the first time? Yes. Was he willing to surrender? Absolutely. No. Because there was things, there was little comforts, there was something in his life that he didn't want to get rid of. And, and now all of a sudden he's saying, no, I'm not willing to do that anymore. Because it was going to cost him something beyond what he was willing to pay. It's interesting that uh, absolute surrender is very difficult for three reasons. Number one is we are prone to be selfish and to be willful creatures. You know, it's, it's interesting, as our children are growing, it doesn't take too long in this world till you see that which needs to be redeemed. Have you noticed that with children? They come into this world, they look so innocent, and you see very quickly that there is a selfish, willful bent in every child's heart. As we grow older, we tend to go to great lengths at times, and even excuses to protect our fleshly interests. Have you ever noticed that? That the things that 
have become very important to you, we seek to protect. When I was younger, I got into photography equipment, for photography. I really enjoyed it. And uh, someone asked to borrow some lenses one time, and I said, sure. I let them borrow the lenses, and one of them came back, and the gears were stripped out. The autofocus didn't work. I could still take pictures with it, but do you think I was willing to lend my lenses out again? Mm-mm. All of a sudden, that, that was precious to me. It was something that I wanted to protect and keep, keep, keep for myself. But when God comes and speaks into our hearts, he, when he speaks into these areas of my, my life, sometimes my flesh wants to rebel. No, I don't want you to take that from me. I want to keep that. And I think sometimes we even spiritualize our willfulness by couching them in spiritual phrases. Like, and I have heard this with my own ears, someone say, I'm so grateful that God's grace covers that area of my life. In other words, God's laying a finger on my, an area of my life, and I, I'm, just, I'm just not ready to deal with that. I'm so grateful that He covers that, because I can't deal with that yet. Or, I've also heard this, you know, God's been speaking to me about this. I'm just not there yet. Are we surrendered if we say those things? Second reason that it's very difficult to be absolutely surrendered is that it requires continually sacrifice of my own will. You know, sacrifice is what? If you think of sacrifice in the Old Testament, what did that require? In almost all cases. It required death. It required the death of something. Whether it was turtle doves, or whether it was a lamb, or whether it was an ox, it required the death of something. And so it is the same thing today. It requires the death of my will. You know, I don't know about you, but I have found that dying is not easy. There, my flesh recoils from it. When someone, when a brother comes to me and speaks to me about something that my flesh is kind of cherishing, it hurts. And, and my natural reaction is to recoil from that and say, you know, who are you to talk to me about that? You know, and, and I put up defenses and barriers because I, I want to kind of protect that. I want to keep that. And yet, it is something that needs to be done daily, sometimes hourly. And when the struggle is hot, it may need to be done minutely of putting my will back on the altar and letting God be in control. Romans 8.13, verse part says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. If we follow the voice of our flesh, we have death. But if we choose to put our flesh and our will to death, then we'll have life. The third thing that makes it so difficult for us to be totally surrendered is that it requires the grace of God to live it out. I say, why does that make it difficult? The reason it makes it difficult is that we cannot do this on our own strength. And yet it feels like that's what we try to do. I remember back when I had some struggles when I was in my late teenage years, morally. And somehow there was this, this struggle inside me that if I, just, if I just gritted my teeth a little harder, if I just tried a little, a little harder with this, I could get through this and I could find victory. And yet if I had done so and found victory, who would have had the glory? We can't do it. 
It's like grabbing your shoelaces and trying to pull yourself up off the ground. You can strain as hard as you want. It will not work. In order for us to be absolutely surrendered, it's going to take the power and grace of God to live it out. Just as a child, and also part of this is that as a, as a child, we depend on our parents to provide us food and shelter and to teach them what they need to know and when they need to know it. So this also takes us depending on God to help us be surrendered. Listening to his voice and the voices of those he brings into our lives. It takes trust and faith. Lord, we talked about that in our men's class. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Lord, I want, I'm surrendered to you in all the areas I know. Lord, help me be absolutely surrendered. And then trusting that he will do that in his time. So how does he do that? How does he help us come to be absolutely surrendered? I think there's two parts. There's our part, and then there's God's part. And we need to make sure we know which is which. So I'm going to look at our part first, and I'm going to look at God's part. So what is our part in being absolutely surrendered? The first thing in our part is repenting of our sin of rebellion. Now, that sounds like a hard word, doesn't it? But yet, I think we need to really call it what it is. If I am not willing to surrender and be obedient to God's voice in my life, what is it? When God lays his finger on an area of my life, whether it be an area of pride or anger or my usage of internet or something else that God knows I struggle with, and I say, Lord, I'm not, I'm not ready to deal with that right now. I've got too many other struggles in my life. What is that called? If, the, if this happened with us with our children, what would we call it? I think we have to understand that it is rebellion and call it what it is. I'd like to remind you that King Saul, when he was sent to destroy the Amalekites, how much of the work did he do? How much? All of it? Most of it. He did most of the work, and, and, he, and he went almost the whole way, but he didn't. He, he kept a little bit back for himself, just, just a little bit. And what was Samuel's words to him? He says, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And, and Saul had couched these in spiritual phrases. We saved the best of the animals for sacrifice, so we could bring back and sacrifice to your God. And... and Samuel said, it's rebellion. You're not submitted. You were not obedient to what God called you to do. You know, a rebellious child is not one that receives his father's blessing, but rather the one who chooses to yield to his father's voice, though he may have rebelled in the past. You know, Matthew 21 talks about the story of two young men. Father goes to the first son and says, Son, I'd like you to come work in my vineyard today. And the son says, sorry, Dad, not doing it. I got my own plans made for the day. I'm not going out there. It's hot. I'm going fishing. I'm, I'm, I'm ad, ad living here a little bit. But he obviously had some other reasons. And he said, I'm not going out in the vineyard. The father goes to the second son. He says, son, I'd like you to come work in my vineyard. Sure, Dad. Yeah, I'd be willing to go. And as the day progresses, the first son he starts feeling really convicted. 
That was not the right response. And he cancels whatever other plans he has, and he goes and works in the vineyard. Now, his attitude was one of rebellion in the beginning. But he repented and became submitted in the end, and he received the blessing and reward. The first son was very submissive in his words, in his speech, in his mannerisms to his father. But yet when it came down to doing the hard work, he was rebellious and he went and did his own way. That's the first part is repenting of our sin of rebellion. The second thing is yielding. Yielding, it's opening our hands to God in all things. And I don't know about you, uh, but sometimes I get a little bit nervous about what all God is going to require of me in the future. I'm going to tell a little bit of a humorous story here, but when Delvin and Lily first came to visit us, they had three children, I think they're expecting their fourth. And we had one, we're expecting our second. And when they left, I looked at my wife and I said, I thank the Lord that he had not called us to that because I don't think I could handle that. And God just laughed. We don't know what all God wants to do in our lives. But yieldedness that says, Lord, whatever you bring, whatever you show me, I will do and I will follow. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful for our Heavenly Father who knows what we can handle. Because if He had showed me all what we're going to be going through, the cancer, the children, the the health issues, and all those things that we struggled with all these years, it would have been overwhelming. My wife and I talked about we would uh, we would hardly had strength to get through the day because we knew what was ahead. And our Heavenly Father knows that. And He asks us today not to yield everything that He is going to be calling us to, but to yield the one thing today. And trust Him to show us the next one. You know, if I was to take my or a five-year-old boy and proceed to lay out for him all the things that he's going to need to do before he gets married, would that be right to expect that of him? But as a good father, I have that end in sight. I have that goal. And so I work for him on the little things today. And the bigger things tomorrow, and the bigger things the next day. Yieldedness says, God, I'm willing to allow you to do that work in my heart. It's emptying myself of my self-will and asking to be filled with his you know, the illustration of being emptied of yourself so you can be filled with it is picture a coffee cup. I know some of you don't drink coffee, but pardon the illustration. If you had a coffee cup that had two or three drops of arsenic in it and you wanted to drink a cup of coffee, would you use the cup? I was to say No. What about if you went out in the swamp, that some, there's quite a few of them around here, I understand, and you went and got just about a tablespoon of swamp water you can put it in there, would you still want to drink your coffee? See, what happens is we think we're yielded because we bring our coffee cup to God and it is almost completely empty. And we're asking God to fill it, to be used by it. And yet when we hold on to something, we're not completely yielded. It's like having that little bit of swamp water or arsenic in there. Is God going to be able to use that effectively? No. It needs to be emptied out, scrubbed out, cleaned out, and then 
it can be filled. That's the picture of yieldedness, is being empty and waiting to be filled by God. Third thing on our part is pleading for God's grace and strength. Again, as I touched on earlier, we cannot do this on our own. We need God's help. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And I like to notice that there's two parts to this. It says, if by the Spirit. That means, what Spirit? Your Spirit? No. It's the Holy Spirit that dwells within inside of you. That as He comes and talks to you, as He speaks to you, as He says, my, my son, my daughter, I love you. I like to touch this area of your life. By His Spirit speaking to us, He guides us in these things. We cannot do this on our own strength. We need God's divine strength. And when, when His Spirit speaks, we need to listen and obey. It's that quiet nudging inside. When I was at, um, I was talking with um, Chief Jesse the other night, and when I was at Bald Eagle Boys Camp working quite a few years ago, I came to the realization that I had stifled that quiet voice for so long that I could no longer hear it. I thought we were talking about experiences. We didn't talk about this. And, um, you know, it's that quiet nudging of God's Spirit saying, this is the best path. You know, when we think that sometimes when we have the Spirit of God within us, there's only one bright, shining path in front of us, and that's the only way we follow. And yet, if I'm going to be completely honest, I think it's most of the time that we're choosing between the best and the good or the okay, rather than between the good and the bad. And we, have, we hear God saying, my son and my daughter, I want you to choose the best path here. And I find all sorts of excuses for choosing the okay one. And I got into the place where I could not hear that voice anymore. I'd come to two paths. I had no, no unction. And that scared me. I realized I had lost something precious. My father and my mother asked me to come home. I came home in disgrace. And my dad said, you know, I want you, until you start hearing the voice of God again, I want you to run a lot of your decision-making through me. And that was hard to do. And yet as I did that, I remember so keenly, I think I have time for the story here quick yet. I remember so keenly that uh, the one... Day, I, I, my alarm clock had broken, and I was supposed to go to work in time. And so I was in town, and one of the things that, that I had had struggled with was how I spent my money. I, it, it, it flowed like water on a hot, sunny day. You know, it, it just disappeared. And my dad had encouraged me. He says, "Until you, until you learn to control this, ask me." And I said, "Okay, I will ask you before I spend money for things other than like gas for the car or stuff like that." And he, he said, "That'd be fine." And I remember being in town, Austin. While I, was, while I was in town, 30 miles away from home, it was before cell phones, uh, I remember thinking, alarm clock. And I went into Pomida, walked back, yep, they got alarm clocks, 10 bucks, it's cheap, yep. So I picked one up and I walked to the front of the store and all of a sudden I remembered, you promised your dad you'd ask him. Yeah. But, but my dad knows I need an alarm clock. I mean, this is, he knows I need this. And, and I'll explain it to him when I get home. 
and kept walking. But you promised him. And I stopped in the middle of that aisle. And there was a raging war inside of me. This is stupid. It's $10 alarm clock. Finally, I went and put it back on the shelf. And I walked out of the store feeling like a fool. And I went home and just kind of... And I couldn't be my own boss, can't make my own decisions and stuff. But I made a promise I'm going to keep it. I got home and I, was, and I told my dad at supper, I said, Hey, can I get an alarm clock? He goes... Knowing him, knowing me, he says, "What kind are you going to get?" Because he knows you can get expensive alarm clocks. I told him what I was looking at, and I, I said, "I stopped him up my to get one, and I didn't." And he says, "Why didn't you?" I said, "Because I made a promise to you." And I said, "I almost did, and I just prompted." And my dad looked at me, and he says, "Whose voice was that telling you?" And all of a sudden, the light came on. God's Spirit was there again. He was speaking through my conscience. He was saying, Son, you know the best way to walk in this. And when God's Spirit speaks to us, and we take the next step of putting to death our willfulness, our own desires, our fleshly desires, He gives us the strength to find victory. Not putting it off till tomorrow or someday I feel stronger, but now. It's pleading his strength to do so and following his spirit because, because he, because he overcame those temptations, he is able to help us as well. There's more that could be said here. I'm just touching these briefly because I don't want to keep you here longer than is necessary. But, the other part is God's part. What's God's part in this whole thing of absolute surrender? The first thing that God does is his guiding. We just talked about this a little bit. God guides us. He, we're trusting Him to do His work in my heart and change it. You know, we cannot change our hearts in and of ourselves. I can't, I can't all of a sudden decide that I'm going to be a much more patient person. It doesn't usually work that way. Um, I can't immediately say, I'm going to be, I'm going to be humble. You know, I've been really proud up till now, but I'm going to be humble. You know, I don't have to be proud of my humility. You know, just, we cannot change our hearts, but He can. And this is where we trust God to do his part to guide us through this. This was so refreeing to me that as a child, um, or as, as, a, as a child of God, I can trust him to show me where I'm at spiritually. Um, I remember so many times as I watched people that have come from the world into our churches, and they see the standard that we have here, the standard of, of modest dress and of, of, a, of the lifestyle that we have, and they see that as a standard way up here. And I remember them talking to us saying, ah, I just don't know if we're ever going to be able to get to that place. And then finally, finally they, they, they come to the place of yieldedness and surrender and they're willing to do that. And then after a while, they start to feel cold. Because, I mean, they, they finally came to that place and they, they surrendered and they're, they're part, they come part of our church and they become part of the standards. And then after a while, they, they remember them saying, we feel like we're getting cold. Well, what happened is we tied our spirituality with our change. And if, unless I keep changing, unless I keep going farther, then I, I, I cease to become spiritual. And part of this is trusting God to guide us in this. That when... I, I can trust Him to show me the things that are wrong. I don't have to keep digging and digging and trying to find out any little nook and cranny to trust God. God, show me if there's an area in my life that is not true. True to you. And resting in that. And waiting for Him to do that. 
There's a freedom in that. I mean, how many of us have children that want uh, that we want them to walk around in pins and needles, wondering if they're going to be doing something wrong? Oh, I, I don't want to. I, I I don't know if I should go sweep the floor now or go make my, make my bed. Oh, which one is going to make dad happier? Um, we would be. I'd be horrified if my children behaved that way. And yet sometimes I think we can do that spiritually. Uh, I don't want to displease God. Um, is there anything else that's wrong in my life? And, and we can become very nervous and scared. And God wants us to rest in His guidance. Rest in that. Wait for me to speak to you. And when I speak, do that. Sometimes He speaks to us through ways that are easier to hear than others. Sometimes He uses His Word and His Spirit, which is very private. And other times he uses a brother or a sister, which is not so private and has a different feel. Our response should still be the same. The second part of God's, God's part on our part is sustaining. When we come to God in complete surrender, it can appear very empty. It feels like we're just giving up stuff and you feel empty. But here with the writer of Hebrews, let me back up. Indeed, there will be times of having a void in our lives that we used to fill with stuff. I guarantee you that if you have, if you are on Facebook two to three hours a day, you will find a void that you'll need to fill with something if you quit. There's going to be an emptiness there, and it will be, and that that is only natural and normal. I'm not, please, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from personal experience, okay? I have no idea what all you struggle with here or what goes on in you guys' lives. So uh, you're just getting a little bit of my testimony in some of these things as well. But here what the writer of Hebrews says in 13.5, Let your conduct be without covetous, but be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? In the context of where this is written, this is warning us about being covetous uh, for things. But, he notes that, but note that there are two things that he will not do. He will not leave us or abandon us. And even though in sometimes in our trials, when we have to give up something, it feels alone. I remember when, um, before I met was my wife, I had to give up the hope and cherish dream for another young lady, and you feel really empty. You feel alone. The promise is still there, that he will never leave us or abandon us. And we need to claim this promise and trust that he is still there, even if it doesn't feel like it. There's also two th- the other thing it says, he will never forsake us. And he'll never neglect us in our need. So if we have that emptiness, we need to trust God for sustaining grace. God help me get through this and trust that he will provide that. He knows what we need and he's promised to provide it for us. And the third thing is protecting. Sometimes in yieldedness to God, it feels very vulnerable. It feels extremely vulnerable. But if we are yielded to God, we have his protection. Spiritually even though it may not be always physically. We only have to look back at our ancestry to find that out. We are the sheep. He is the shepherd. 
I'd like, it to like you to hear what God's heart is towards those who are totally surrendered towards him in Ezekiel 11. And speaking to the people who had been following idols and had been given themselves to idolatry. And God says, and they, the people, will go there and they will take away all the detestable things and all the abominations from there. That takes action. Getting rid of the things they know that are wrong. And then I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. But for those whose hearts follow the desire for their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord. If we are open and we are submitted to him, he will give us that new heart. He'll come in. His desire is there. He says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. It's the heart of a father pleading for his children. I want you. I long for you to come. But if you refuse, if you can insist on holding on to the things that I'm asking you to leave, then I will give you over to them, and you'll be alone in them. Four benefits of being surrendered to God, and then I will close. And as, as I look at these, I'm going to be looking at the four benefits, the four positive sides of these things, but the inverse is also true. So that if we don't do these things, then we will experience the negative result of that. First benefit of being absolutely surrendered to God is, be, is having freedom from guilt. You know, Satan loves to hold our failings over our heads and beat us up with them whenever we get a chance, whenever he gets a chance. But when we are submitted to God, we have those things behind us. And we are free from those guilty feelings because they are under the blood. But as long as we are still holding on to them, Satan's got a billy club and he has no qualms about using it to beat us up when we are weak. I'd also like to say, working with the public, the public has no way to deal with guilt. But they try to fill it with many things. They, they try to fill it with many, many things. We have a way of dealing with that as being yielded and submitted to God and we will have freedom from that. Freedom from guilt leads us to um, the second thing. The empowerment to live above sin's continual traps. Now, I want to be very careful how I state this here. I don't believe that we will ever reach sinless perfection here in this life. But I also want to state very clearly that I believe by the power of God we are able to live outside the bondage of being continually fallen in sin. Do you understand me? There's a big difference here between saying, I will never sin again, and another thing of saying, I will not be in bondage to sin where I'm going to keep falling over and over and over and over again. God's grace would be a mockery if that's the way it was. When we are surrendered to God... He points the way for us to walk and He will give us the strength to take that first step and then the next and the next and walk that walk of faith. As we do, His Spirit grows stronger inside of us and the voice of our flesh weaker. The third benefit of being absolutely surrendered to God is openness and transparency. How many of you have had something in some time in your life that you've wanted to keep hidden? 
You didn't want people to know about it. Did that cause you to be closer with other people? To build closer relationships? Or to create a little bit of a barrier that you don't want anyone getting quite too close because of what that might they might find out? Same thing with God. You know, we sing that song, My Heart is Like a House. One day I let the Savior in. And then he points to that room. He says, I want to go visit in there. And we weren't sure about that. We wanted to close the door. We wanted to keep it closed because then, then it's hidden. And God says, no, I want to go clean it out. And when we cleaned it out, there's that freedom. That openness. Those of you who have walked, have professed the name of Christ, and you're walking in His path, remember that back to that night when God's Spirit laid so heavy on you? The weight? And when you... When you gave the yourself to God, you yielded to Him completely. The freedom and the openness that was there. The sky was brighter and cleaner. There was that openness. There was that desire for fellowship with Him. That is one of the rewards of yieldedness. And the opposite would also be true. That if you don't do that, then you don't have that uh, openness and transparency. I also would say that as we remove our secrets, or as we are open and whole with God, it helps us be willing to be open and transparent with each other as brothers and sisters. And the fourth benefit of being absolutely surrendered to God is the ability for God to use you in ways that were totally unattainable by yourself. Read the faith chapter, faith chapter in Hebrews, and you'll see these people who did incredible things. God used them in mighty ways. And why? Because they were yielded and submitted to what God asked them to do. And they did stuff that just blew things away. They, I better keep moving on. Brothers and sisters, we have a promise from God that He will never ask us to surrender something that He is not amply able to replace something of far more value. Do you believe that? There is nothing in our lives that God is going to ask us to yield and submit to Him that He is not able to give us something so much better. Maybe not in this life, but certainly in eternity. I'd like to close with this story. And while we don't condone the wearing of jewelry for obvious reasons. The Bible does speak of it as being something of value. And so I'd like to tell this story as an illustration of surrender to God and what God is wanting from us. Jenny was a little girl, almost five, and she was with her mommy in the grocery store when she saw them. It was a little little string of pearls curled up or uh, coiled up in a little cellophane bag right next to the cash register. And she goes, Mommy, can I have this string of pearls? And her mommy kind of looked at the back of it. It was $1.97. And she said, Well, you only have you, know, you have, you have a little bit of money at home. And maybe, maybe I can get some other chores for you. And you can earn, earn some money. And your birthday's coming up shortly. And Grandma always gives you a, a crisp dollar bill. And maybe you can earn some money in a little bit and you can save and buy them yourself. So that evening when she went home from, when they got home, um, Jenny helped her mama, did more than her share of chores, and, and her mama gave her a few extra pennies. She went to the neighbor and asked if she could pick some dandelions, and, and she earned uh, another shiny dime for her, her um, piggy bank then. 
And sure enough, when her birthday came, she got a dollar bill from Grandma, and she had enough, and she went and bought this little string of pearls. Jenny loved those pearls. She wore them everywhere. She wore them to bed. She wore them to kindergarten. She wore them to school. She wore them to play in the playground. Her mommy wouldn't let her take a bath or swim with them because she said they would turn her neck green. But she wore them everywhere. They were, they were just, they were very precious to her. Now, Jenny also had a very loving daddy. And every night when it was time to get ready for bed, daddy would quit with his work and he'd go get a book and, and he'd go and he'd read her a story in bed and tuck her into bed every night. And one night, he got done with the story and said their prayers. He looked at Jenny and he said, Jenny, do you love me? And Jenny says, of course, daddy, I love you. And daddy said, give me your pearls. And Jenny goes, oh, daddy, not, not my pearls, but let me give you my horse. Her name's Princess. Remember, oh, she's my favorite one. And I'll even give you the saddle and stuff. Um, it's one I got for my birthday last time, remember? And I'll, I'll give you the horse instead. And daddy says, no, that's okay. I love you. Good night. And kissed her good night and left. A couple weeks later, he got done with story time. And he said, Jenny, do you love me? Oh, yes, Daddy, I love you. Can I have your pearls? Daddy, not my pearls, but um, how about my doll, the one I just got for, for uh, that you gave me for my birthday? It's my favorite doll. I'll even give you the whole clothes and everything else with it. She's, she's really nice. And Daddy says, no, that's okay. I love you. Good night. A few nights later, Daddy comes into the room, and there was Jenny sitting on her bed, and her lips kind of quivering. And she looks up at her daddy, and a tear rolls down her cheek, and daddy goes, Jenny, what's the matter? And Jenny reaches out, and she holds out, opens her hand, and she says, Daddy, here's my pearls. You can have them. Daddy got down on one knee and he took those pearls in one hand and he pulled a little velvet box out of his pocket. And he gave her a string of genuine pearls instead. And he had had them all along. But he was just waiting for her to give up the cheap trinkets so that he could give her the real gems. I don't know why God had me share this message this morning. I don't know what where some what, what you find yourself tempted to hold on to. But is there an area of our life where we're holding on to a trinket? And God's waiting with the gems until we let go. Are we willing to surrender and give it totally to God so that we can be free from the weight of withholding it? It is only through a life of surrender that you and I will be able to be the people that God designed us to be. Let's kneel for prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for not just asking us to yield to you, but Lord, for so walking this path and so amply showing us how to do so.
Lord, you're not asking us to do something that you have not already done. And Lord, I thank you that you've promised to give us the strength to do so when we are willing. Lord, help us to be submitted to your will, to your voice. Lord, to be so sold out for you that we are free and open and transparent. And Lord, we are able to be used by you to feed and quench the thirst of the hungry around us. Lord, I pray for each one of us that you would speak to our hearts. You'd show us the things that hinder us from being totally yielded. And Lord, I pray for your power and your grace to surrender, to follow and submit to your will and walk in your ways. Lord, may you raise us up to be a godly generation and a witness to the world of a faithful following you through whatever may be. We ask this in your name. Amen.